Hello and welcome to Quilt Period's Markets Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and trends that we have been exploring for you here at Quilt Achieviate. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on or by following hashtag QC weekly comment on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Vanessa Eve, investment manager based out of our Leeds office. And this week, I'm pleased to be joined by regular podcast guest Richard Carter, our head of fixed interest research, and Carly Morehouse, fund analyst research and recent winner of the City of London Wealth Management Awards Best Research Analyst. So congratulations to Carly on that one. And good morning to you both. Now, last week saw a raft of data coming out of both the US and UK. However, before we delve into today's discussion around that, I'm delighted to confirm that this podcast as well and our sister one, The Fund Buyer, have both been shortlisted for Best Podcast for the Investment Marketing and Innovation Awards 2023. The winners will be announced at a special ceremony on Friday 7th of July, so fingers crossed for Richard, Nick and the team. And on that positive note, I would like to turn to Richard as the Bank of England has raised interest rates once again by a quarter of a percentage point to 4.5% on Thursday of last week, which is a 15-year high. What do you see as the immediate impact of such a rate decision? Well, Vanessa, I think the immediate impact, certainly in the very short term, I mean, it's, it's not going to be uh, very much, but I think what we've got to do is certainly not going to sort of deal with the um, sort of big issues facing the UK in terms of inflation, because a lot of that's been driven by food prices and energy bills. And, and frankly, uh, another, rate ri- another, another rate rise is not going to help that. Um, but I think we've, I think we can, we've got to look at it in the context that this is sort of the 12th uh, increase in the row from Bank of England. Uh, and ultimately, those rate hikes will have an impact, even if it does take a bit of time to come through. I mean, you've got to think about people with their fixed rate mortgage that they may be set, you know, a few years ago at 2% or whatever. And as those roll off, and as over a million people um, this year will have their uh, mortgage rates reset, as, you know, as those reset to higher uh, rates of interest, that's going to really cause a, another squeeze on their uh, spending and on their household income on top of what they're already facing anyway. So, as I say, the immediate impact, not so much. But over time, you know, these rate hikes will lead to a slowdown in the economy, we expect. Uh, and ultimately, that will get inflation down. The, the danger is the Bank of England, of course, operating through a kind of rear view mirror and ends up over tightening and, and sort of drives the economy um, into a weaker place than, than we hope. But um, yeah, they're, they're very committed to get this inflation rate down. So patience is very much a virtue at this stage, um, but I suppose the cautious outlook is uh, the Bank of England doesn't go too far. And I'll be the first to admit I'm not looking forward to renegotiating my mortgage later this year. Um, But on other matters, I I think uh, we've obviously taken a look at the UK, um, but I think it's probably a good idea to also look over the the pond uh, at the US because much has been made of what is essentially um, a new political standoff in the US over the decision to raise the debt ceiling. Um, with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning that the US will not have enough money to meet all of its financial obligations as soon as the 1st of June this year. Um, 
to your mind, Richard, what would be the likely consequences of a lack of agreement, given that this is something that has never happened before? It, it would be pretty bad. I mean, I, I, um, I don't think the US is going to default. I mean, the, the last time they got close, close 20, 2011, they ended up doing some sort of deal. It could end up being, you know, a very short term deal that allows another few weeks for negotiations and they get there in the end. But I really don't think they're going to end up um, defaulting. And the last sort of, you know, messages coming out of Washington over the weekend suggest that they're being pretty grown up and they're sort of getting around the table and going to work, you know, thrash out some sort of agreement. Now, having said all that, if accidents do happen and the political margins are fairly tight um, in, in Congress, and if they were to not reach an agreement, I, I mean, it depends on what the Treasury decides to do. They could um, and probably would prioritise paying uh, interest and, and, and principal payments on the bonds that they, they, um, they've issued at the expense of things like social security payments, um, the wages of government workers, all those things could be uh, shelved while they sort of, you know, wait for Congress to come up in agreement. Now, you know, if, if the government can't uh, pay its bills, um, that's going to that's gonna basically ripple through the economy and cause a pretty steep recession. So, as I say, hopefully we won't come to that, and I suspect there'll be an agreement probably you know, within, it might go down to the wire, but I suspect we'll get there in the end. So everyone having to tighten the purse strings, including governments around the world. So interesting that uh, that, that is taking place. And I, I suppose a final question for you, Richard, again, just looking at the US, because um, actually their inflation figures eased to 4.9% in April as the Federal Reserve tightening looks to begin to take effect. So something we hope will be replicated in the UK. Um, how do you see this impacting the US economy, um, particularly as we got results of UK GDP last week, which showed a 0.1% increase in the first quarter of the year against all expectations? So things do seem to be moving in the right direction for the UK, but perhaps the US is a little bit further ahead than us on this one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so actually growth has been fairly resilient, uh, more so than people expected at the start of the year here and probably the US as well. But we've seen these sort of rumblings in the banking sector that, uh, you know, all those, like you're talking about, the uh, lagged effect of all those rate rises are starting to cause some problems. So, I mean, it's good news inflation's coming down, um, but it's coming down slowly. You've still got core inflation, you know, taking out some of the more volatile items is still above 5%. It's too high for the Fed to get, you know, to start to relax. And I think, um, you know, if you do see some weakness in the economy, they're not really yet in a position that they can start cutting interest rates. They need inflation down, you know, well below 5% before they can start doing that. So I think things are okay for now. I think, you know, kind of generally heading in the right direction. But, um, you know, the risk is that we start to see slower growth. Uh, and the Fed has to say, look, inflation's too high. We can't cut rates yet. And that would be a, that would be a difficult situation, I think, for markets. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get there, uh, you know, as the year goes on. Yeah, so a bit of conflict between two opposing forces, but interest rates do seem to be here to stay for the moment, at least. So thank you very much for those insights, Richard. And that leads me quite nicely onto some questions for, for Carly. Um, because many economists have been predicting um, how different geographies will see different rates of growth during the course of 2023 and 2024. Um, where do you see in the research that you do the opportunities globally? So most data that we've seen points mainly to China with regards to where we'll see growth this year and next. 
We know that most major economies are really struggling in this department. High inflation as well as high and in some cases still rising rates are certainly not helping. And we know that growth hasn't been the strongest here in the UK and a US recession is not off the cards. But China is in a different part of the cycle to other major economies uh, with their inflation very much under control and the fact that they've been loosening monetary policy. Many don't know that last year, average interest rates on new enterprise loans fell to the lowest level on record. So very different to elsewhere globally. China's economy expanded 4.5% in Q1, which is a good start, but that still included impacts from COVID as a lot of people in China had COVID in January as it rapidly spread across the country once it reopened. So uh, this makes me optimistic for the rest of the year as that clearly isn't an issue anymore and consumer confidence on the ground in China continues to pick up momentum. We have to remember that as soon as the zero COVID policy was lifted in China, people didn't just forget the past three years and go straight back to how they were in 2019. The past three years, there's been a lot of stopping and starting with regards to lockdown. So it's no wonder the Chinese population were a bit nervous to spend in case it all reverted back to quarantines and lockdowns. I think we are at the point now, though, where people are realising there's no going back. And this will hopefully continue to boost consumer confidence and get people back out and spending. So we should start to see this come through to a much higher degree in corporate results over the next few quarters. There are a number of companies like Alibaba and Pindodo which are reporting this week, so we'll see. I also want to highlight that growth is very much at the front of the Chinese government's agenda for this year, as the newly appointed Premier Li Chung has made clear in many of his recent statements. And when something is a focus of the Chinese government, there is a concerted effort by all to make that a reality. I also think that we'll continue to see decent growth in other parts of Asia, particularly where they're beneficiaries of the China reopening as Chinese tourists start to travel again. The main countries where this is the case is, of course, Hong Kong. So in 2019, before the pandemic, visitors to Hong Kong from the mainland accounted for almost four-fifths of the city's 56 million visitors that year, which shows the impact that China has. Thailand and Vietnam are also key beneficiaries. So I grew up in Thailand, and aside from COVID, I go back annually. It really is such a stark difference with regards to where tourists are now. So a few months on from reopening and, and we still haven't seen anywhere near pre-COVID levels of travel. And this is gonna take time and you know is also a function of flights not being fully resumed. But once outbound travel from China starts to gain pace again, it'll have quite an impact on the economies of Southeast Asian countries, particularly those I mentioned. I think we're also going to continue to see growth in countries like India and Vietnam, where the China plus one strategy of moving manufacturing facilities away from China continues. And we're already seeing it from major companies like Apple and the trajectory for this clearly remains. And you've gone into a huge amount of detail there, which is incredibly interesting, um, because as you've quite rightly pointed out, you know, China's reopening in the early part of this year was hailed as very much a great opportunity for growth. So it is interesting that um, many funds exposed to China have seen a lot of weakness despite this reopening. And you've obviously touched upon the caution that the Chinese consumer has. Um, but the fact that the, the government is very supportive of growth and generally speaking, um, it is quite determined to see growth. Um, do you still see this as a, a buying opportunity? Yeah, so sadly, we haven't seen that growth fully come through yet. Firstly, because I think there was so much optimism for the reopening and expectations were very high. So with any less than stellar results or you know, macro data, we've, we've tended to see a hit to sentiment and, and then the market. 
The data has been quite mixed. So it's been very positive on the services side, but factory output has lagged and you know, latest trade numbers weren't great either. So altogether, it's making investors start to question the recovery and, and whether we were all too optimistic. Um, and then if you pair this with geopolitical tensions, which continue along in the background, particularly between China and the US, you know, there's that constant concern about China escalating things with Taiwan. So it's not hugely surprising the market hasn't done much. Um, you know, the risk premium for China today is higher than it has been in the past, and I think that will remain. So to justify this, investors need to see the growth that we're speaking about um, before you know, really come through in a strong and sustained way. And I think you know, once the market starts to perform well again, China becomes very hard to ignore. I think what's also hard to ignore is China's relative valuation against both its own history and relative to other markets. So China's trading at, a, at about 20% discount to the US on a 12-month forward price-to-earnings basis, while Hong Kong Stock Exchange is trading at a multi-decade low relative to the world index. So yes, I do think this is a buying opportunity. Obviously, it's impossible to time these things correctly. But as we saw when the Chinese government decided to remove the zero-code policy, when things move in China, they move very quickly. And today is still a good entry point, given what I was saying before about relative valuations, growth compared to other global economies, and the attractiveness of the risk-reward opportunities in China. And those points are really interesting because, as you said, the Chinese government will move quite quickly. And um, I suppose the, the Chinese consumer is um, one consumer um, demographic that, that has actually saved up a huge amount during the periods of lockdown. And in a similar fashion to sort of Western consumers, they may well have accumulated some significant savings during the periods when they weren't allowed to go out and, and spend that money. Um, so how do you see the best ways of taking advantage of this potential macroeconomic tailwind? Yeah, so while cost of living crisis isn't something that Chinese consumers have been dealing with, as I mentioned before, I think the key thing weighing on, on the consumer in China has been that lack of confidence. So they have this, um, you know, big pool of savings, but there's this constant fear of will we or won't we go back into lockdown? And five months on from that very swift U-turn of the zero COVID policy, we are seeing early signs of this recovering. So, you know, retail sales, home sales, manufacturing and investment all improved in Q1. And we're seeing sales at restaurants and bars pick up quite strongly. So you know, these are good signs. And I think it's just the beginning. But the, uh, the recovery is going to be very consumer led um, you know, because the rest of the world is slowing, this isn't going to benefit China's exports. So I think particularly in the short to medium term, while there's uncertainty as to where other global economies are heading, you know, I think active management focusing on companies selling goods and services to domestic consumers is where the most opportunities lie. There are funds which focus specifically on this that could benefit. So, you know, for example, the Fidelity China Consumer Fund, as the name suggests, provides exposure to these types of areas. But I think, you know, just one final point is that focusing more on the domestic Chinese companies with domestic consumer bases also helps to protect more from that ever-present geopolitical risk that we've been speaking about. And a very pertinent point to, to end on. So thank you very much, Carly, for those insights and uh, also to Richard and to all of you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our discussion today. 
And we would love to hear from you, our listeners. So please do review the show now, wherever you're listening, and share it on your socials and tag us at Quilt Achieve It. Now, to make sure you don't miss a future episode, please do tap the subscribe button. We will be back next Tuesday. And in the meantime, do head over to our website, www.quiltachieveit.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview, as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or our social media pages. Finally, do you have any questions you would like to ask one of our experts for the next podcast? If so, simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. We'd love to hear your questions. And that's all we have time for today. So thank you to Richard and Carly for all those detailed insights. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Bye.